All right, welcome. Happy Good Friday to you guys. This is our um, weekly Q&A. This is actually episode 70 of the Q&A, although I've done many, done many before I started counting the episodes. And you guys are loading your questions in. For those who haven't been here before, let me just take 10 seconds to explain what we do. You put questions in the live chat. I try to give you a solid biblical answer to the best of my ability, trying to show you my work as, as to how I get there, not just to tell you what to think, but to help you learn the process of thinking biblically about everything. And so our first question today comes from Stephen Lang from England, who says, why did Jesus's resurrected body still bear the scars and injuries which brought about his death? It is my understanding, he says, um, there it is. It is my understanding that our own resurrected bodies will be perfect in every way, not merely those we had just prior to death. I, for one, want all my absent teeth and hair back. Why hasn't Jesus's body why wasn't Jesus's body also perfect as ours will be? And so I think this is a, a great question, something that I think uh, I think most Christians are automatically interested in. You know, like I want to. I, I'm obviously this is deeply connected to my future experience in eternity, and it's also connected to Jesus and His glorified body. And that, so anyway, it's all just very interesting stuff. In the Gospels, we do read about. Just for recap, for anybody who might not be aware, we read about Jesus after His resurrection, not only having the wounds from the crucifixion, specifically the nail marks in his hands and the the piercing in his side. But we also read about him presenting those wounds for inspection with Thomas the Apostle in particular. Hey, Thomas, come here, put your finger in my hand. Now, we don't know if he actually put his finger in Jesus's hand, wherever, you know, I, I'm inclined to think it was here, maybe it was here. <clears throat> and um, we don't know for sure. But we do know that those marks were there, right? The, these, these are the wound marks. Now, some people say Jesus's scars were there. I don't know if they were technically scars. I don't know if the word wound is the best word to describe it. Like what word do you actually use to describe this? Because these are these are the marks of injuries and maybe mark is a better word. These are the marks of injuries Jesus had, yet they are not currently affecting him in negative ways. But were, was it scar tissue? Was it closed up? Well, if it was normal scar tissue, you would expect that you couldn't put your finger in the hole. So it's, it's interesting just what is going on here. Um, so one of the questions we can ask that might help us wrap our heads around this uh, Stephen, in my opinion, and for you to consider, is that the marks on Jesus of the crucifixion had purpose. There was meaning behind them. There were there were specific reasons that would apply to these marks that don't really apply well to your teeth or your hair. And so let me walk through some of those. For one, it was to prove that Jesus was still Jesus. Right? When they saw him, one of the confirmations that this is this is that Jesus, this is the real Jesus, is that they're seeing these marks from the crucifixion still on him. So this proves that it really was him. That was a significant thing. Um, your teeth or hair aren't going to have that effect in eternity. So there's a disconnect that's there. Um, your lack of teeth and hair would not do that. And um, so to prove also, there's another reason for the marks on Jesus, to prove that he had overcome death. Now, it's one thing to see a risen Jesus where he's, he's perfectly whole, like his body is in its optimal state. And you would see that and um, you would see that as an overcoming of death. But there's a different flavor that comes across when Jesus shows up and he has the wound, especially the one in his side. This is a death blow wound. This is where blood and water poured out and either it pierced his lungs or his heart or both. And this, um, think about the impact of this. It's one thing to see me, you know, someone risen from the dead. It's something else to see them with death blow, with a current death blow in their body and they're still functioning fine. This is like, a, I'll put it this way, it's a power move. It's like a power move against death saying, look, this is the kind of victory I have over death, that even right now with a, a death blow, I am still perfectly fine. And I think that that's, 
a powerful thing to, t and does that, now do you need that with your teeth or hair? No, I don't think that that applies. Um, it also reminds us of how we're saved. And so let's look at a couple scriptures on this. Um, Isaiah 53, 5. This is a function of the scars or the marks of Christ that doesn't really apply well to the to us continuing to have scars and wounds. Like I've got a, a scar right here from when I was a kid, fell and hit a brick. It's built up scar tissue. It's like a, it feels like a permanent bruise on my head, right? Like I just don't see how this functions in the same way as Jesus' scars or his marks. But here we see uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. This is quoted as well in 1 Peter 2.24. Um, here on Good Friday, may I remind us all that the purpose of Jesus' death was to save us and that the wounds he experienced were part of that saving. And so the marks remaining on him after his resurrection is a way of proclaiming to us how we got saved. It wasn't through the, the amazing power of God to just defeat the enemy through just straight means of like aggressive victory, although there will come a time in the future where he does that. It was by taking on our sins. It was by Jesus coming and being, I'll be your representative here on earth as Adam was representing you all in the garden. I will take your sins, the punishment for the sins you committed, I will take it upon myself. Here's God self-offering and experiencing the wounds that we deserve for our transgressions. And it's, it's beautiful. And him living with those wounds is like a continual proclamation of the love and grace of God for all eternity. I think it's beautiful, right? So that that to me seems pretty powerful. Um, but now let me ask the question of, um, well, there's two questions I'll ask. One I won't answer, <laughs> but I'll throw it out there for you guys to think about. Was Jesus's body after his resurrection going to be further glorified in a way that might remove the wounds or remove the marks of the wounds? And that's a debate that people have. Uh, I'm inclined to think no, but I understand why some people think yes. He, he says at that point that he has not yet been glorified. But then that's, I believe in the gospel of John, where even though I was, after he's risen, he says, I haven't been glorified yet. But also in John, the future glorification of Christ is when he says to the father in the, in the, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, right? Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. That's not talking about a physical transformation of his earthly body as much as it is him being raised up to be the name above all names, like we read about in Philippians 2. So to me, this feels like a different kind of thing that's happening, not a glorification of his body, but of his person as he's you know going to be exalted. Um, <clears throat> but there's one verse that makes people think that if Jesus still had wounds, we must too. And let's go to that verse and look at it. And then I'll go to your guys' other questions today. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know, and this is the key, that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. <clears throat> so I think a lot of people take this verse and they say, well, what we can do then is go, I don't know a lot about what I'll be like, but I know I'll be like Jesus. Then they go, what do we know about Jesus' glorified body? Well, he still had wounds or marks. I, I should be careful here and say marks of the wounds, because I don't know that I would call them active wounds, right? So marks of the wounds. Um, but we might be missing some of the context of this verse because the whole point of the verse is that we don't know. <laughs> so it's not yet been revealed what we'll be. It, we don't really know. We know we'll be glorified. First Corinthians talks about this. First Corinthians 15, our corruption will put on incorruption. Our mortality, we'll, we'll put that off and put on immortality. And so if you have any element of you that's part of the corruption of this world, right, that's going to be gone, it seems, but we don't really know the details. Um, I don't think we were meant to take 1 John 3, 2 
and say, whatever Jesus was like in his resurrected body, I can say, I will be a perfect parallel of that. For instance, Jesus was male, right? But I'm not suggesting that women turn into males in the resurrected bodies. That would actually be an ancient Gnostic, <laughs> weird teaching type thing. Um, <clears throat> so we just know we'll be like him. And why will we be like, we'll be like him? Because we'll look like him, because we'll have the scars like he did. But no, it says, because we'll see him as he is. It actually has to do with our capacity. Jesus is 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 incredibly glorious and we will be able to finally fully perceive the glory and power and goodness of God. And there's, there's an elevation of us, right? Moses couldn't quite fully see God's glory. Nobody really could, but we, we will because we will be more like him that allows us to perceive him as he is. So I just wouldn't lean too hard on, um, the idea that if Jesus had wounds, we do too. Um, let me, let me just say this. Here's some clear things about our future bodies that I think I can lean on. Um, it's clear that the function won't be limited. That That's clear to me because corruption puts on incorruption. Um, so if you have, like, say, for instance, missing teeth is an actual real functional problem in your life. I don't think your future glorified body will experience the lack of function. An example of this is even with the wound in Jesus, his function of being alive doesn't isn't diminished. So I don't think function will be limited. I think it's also clear that if we do have marks of past injuries, that will somehow be glorious. Like it won't be a burden to us. It wouldn't It wouldn't be a problem. But it's also clear that a lot of our damage has to be undone. Like God doesn't just revive the life and you look and, and are the same way. Um, a lot of our damage has to be undone. Those who've had brain damage, scars and wounds in their brains, like this has to be undone. The amputations. But let me give you an analogy from scripture. If, if Jesus will heal a man with a withered hand, think about this. He heals a man with a withered hand on earth. How, how is it that we don't think a withered hand would be healed in our glorified bodies? Because that, that seems to be part of the thing. So if any scars remain, they would seem to be exceptions to the rule and they would somehow not impact, impact our function, our living out this glorified existence. And that's how I see Jesus's wounds. They don't, they don't do either of those things. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm inclined to think uh, we're not going to have wounds and scars and that Jesus exists as a purposeful um, memorial to how salvation of the world has taken place. So let's go to question number two. Thank you guys for joining me today. This one comes in from Douglas C. Diskin. And I just need to do that and I'm good. Um, hi, Pastor Mike. Do you think Noah could be a type of Christ? Why or why not? Um, I, I think that we have clear indications that the ark and the experience of the flood is a type of Christ. And we get this in first Peter. Um, and actually I taught about this through my, through my verse by verse teaching through first Peter. And I'll take a moment to just plug it for you guys. I'm, I don't, for, for my sake, I don't care that you watch it, but if you're interested in this, I go into more detail in that. And also in my Jesus in the old Testament passage uh, or series, I do this. I think the ark stands more as our, um, image of Christ than perhaps Noah does. So Noah is a man who's faithful and, and, and he believes God and he trusts God and he considers himself in a sense, not part of the world, but part of what's to come. And so those are, those are all good qualities and things. Um, he does build the ark. Okay. So there's, there's an, a sense there in which there's like a, an active work he's doing. That's going to help bring about salvation. <clears throat> you could suggest that although what he's lauded for is his faith. I think not, not that, um, but the ark itself, I think, is where I would look to see the symbolism of Christ most clearly in the story of the flood. So the ark itself, there's a few things I'll just throw out there. It goes through the judgment while Noah and his family hide in the ark. And the ark, in a sense, experiences the judgment 
but it's able to withstand and come out on the other side. Isn't that interesting? It, it experiences the flood, the judgment, but it can come through the other side safely. And those who are in the ark are safe. And so in Christ, we pass through the judgment. The ark itself is, is um, covered in pitch and there's like symbolism and language there that almost applies like atonement coverings. The, the ark has an has a opening in its side and it's this opening that is sealed by God, but then opened also for them to come out of the ark. And so the, in, the entry and access point is the side of the ark and Christ, you know, his, his blood and water poured out of him. I think that the ark has <clears throat> a few different things that are like interesting symbolism going on there. And first Peter talks about the ark. Go look up first Peter, go tag up first Peter um, and the flood. And you'll see how being brought through is sort of a, a, a symbolism of our baptism in Christ. Then being brought through the flood is like our baptism in Christ. So I would look to the ark more so than to Noah to be that sort of typology. doesn't mean there couldn't be anything in Noah. And I'll link my Jesus in the Old Testament series for those of you guys that are interested in, in checking this out. I think it's a, it's my favorite thing I've ever done. <laughs> it's the most, just, just on it being a blessing, fun, uh, spiritually uplifting and encouraging and exciting. Um, best thing I've done. All right, number three, Mr. Nobody has a question. Hello, Pastor Mike. How do I develop a craving for solid biblical teaching? I really enjoy your content, but I become bored easily. It's easy for me to get distracted in my free time. Thanks. Um, well, you know, obviously, Mr. Nobody, I wouldn't be able to maybe solve this problem, but I can maybe point you towards positive things that you could think about or do. Um, from my own experience, just practical life experience, when I have an outlet for something to do with my knowledge that I'm learning about scripture and about God, that changes the learning process. So I'm going to ask you to consider getting an outlet. Now, an outlet doesn't mean you have to be a teacher in a church, although that's possible. But you can also just be sharing it with other people. Maybe you're part of a Bible study group. You, you get part of like an active uh, social media page or following or group so that you can talk about those things. When you can actively engage with others on the topics that you're studying and learning, I think that you approach them differently and you're more excited about it. And you're more interested in, in it. Um, I also think that I'd, I'd say you become bored easily. Like, um, there's something that can be said about uh, study skills being a little bit like like strength building <laughs> when you go to the gym. And so there's this difficulty in continuing to study and continuing to read and all that. But you can build up stronger tolerances as you just force yourself to do it anyways. And so, you know, the difference between someone who runs a marathon and someone who can barely run around the block is just that. The person who runs a marathon used to be that guy that could barely run around, the, but they just kept going anyways, right? And then they went a little further and a little further and a little further, and they would hit that wall that everyone hits, and they would just push a little harder. And I think with study, sometimes that's what you do. You 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 just don't quit when you hit your first difficulty, and you build up those tolerances. I personally hit the wall all the time when I'm studying, and I'll get up and I'll go do a task. I'll just go walk around. Um, and do something physical just to kind of like clear my mind so that I can get back to studying. Uh, but I study obviously more than I would expect any normal person to, to study, but that's, that's my contribution to the body of Christ. So I'm just saying that I understand that difficulty. Um, giving yourself an outlet, super helpful. Learning to just push through and study a little bit more than what you would normally tolerate. Really helpful in building that sort of strength building as far as studying goes. And, um, Perhaps the other thing is you find teachers that 
you find invigorating, you find helpful, you find really, they, they educate you, they train you well, they, they give you the word of God. And, and it's, it's in a way that it really helps you. And we're blessed because in, in most of church history, you're not going to have access to most of these teachers. Maybe you could find a book from someone who you really like and you really grow that way. But there's tons of access to tons of teachers online. I recommend finding ones that help you as long as they're solid. Uh, William Hall says, I've noticed many people don't believe in God because of evolution. Is evolution contrary to God? Could God really have created the earth in six literal days? Can God speed up the creation process? Um, okay, three different questions there. I'm going to take them in reverse order. So can God speed up the creation process? Um, I'm, a, I'm just going to guess, William, that what you mean here is um, based on, say, a, a uniformitarian kind of naturalistic view of creation, it would take X number of years for the universe to go from initial initial singularity moment to today. Can God speed that up? Can he take what are, can he make it so that natural processes are happening, but they're happening super fast? The answer is going to be an obvious yes, he could. And the only question to follow up with is, do we think that's what happened? Do we think that's what he did? And I don't know of a particular scripture that suggests that God like accelerated time or accelerated the, the way that we measure time. I don't know that that is consistent with scripture there. So then we have other alternate theories. Like some would say, oh, well, it's just the appearance of age, you know, for the young earth creationists. They would say, well, it's, it's the appearance of age. It's not actual age. Or they'll say, you guys are just wrong about how long it would take for the universe. This is a different option for the universe to get to this current state. So the, there's a debate on the speed of light. Right. And so guys like from uh, Answers in Genesis, Jason Lyle, who's a physicist, he would suggest that the speed of light has just not been constant. Um, well, let me let me say that differently. Um, I think his current the current thing he leans on, at least as of like a year ago, I heard him saying it is that the speed of light is different one way than it is the other way. So let's say that I shoot a beam of light, hit my hand, it hits my hand and then it bounces back. I think he suggests that the speed of light goes instantaneously forward. And it takes time to go the other way. And this is uh, this, I'm just throwing out to you some options. I, I, don't, I don't personally hold to that view, nor am I qualified to make judgment calls on the speed of light very easily. <laughs> so um, so I, I don't swallow it, but I also am not throwing my hat in the ring all that much, to be honest, on the topic. Um, so that's one view. Um, yeah, so could God speed up? Yeah, possibly he could. Do we think that's what happened? I don't think there's a biblical case for that. It's possible, but it, it's just based on silence. And there's other options for young earth creationists like the appearance of age or other things. Um, could God really have created the earth in six literal days, you asked? Um, yeah, why not? Um, it, I mean, it would be a miraculous process. Now, I'm not saying, uh, oh, therefore, it, it, it happened that way. But you asked, could it? Uh, yeah, anybody who thinks that couldn't happen, God couldn't do that, I think that's hugely irrational. Anyone who thinks God didn't do that, I'm not saying that's irrational. <laughs> if it's irrational to think God, all-powerful, almighty God, couldn't create the world in six days, literally. Why not? Like, why couldn't he? Now, it's totally fair to say I don't think he did. But to, to rule it out because of possibility, that is a strange manifestation of, of philosophy in my mind. Um, yeah, so I, I want to look at the evidence from scripture and the evidence from creation. And I want to ask the question, did he do it that way? And I'm personally more interested in the scripture stuff. Are those six days of creation meant to tell us that God literally made the world in six literal 24-hour days? 
And I used to hold that very strongly and many years ago and over time. I, in fact, I'm glad that the teaching of my own teaching, saying things like that when I was younger, isn't online, not because I'm embarrassed by anything scripture says, because I'm not. Rather, I just think that I had some interpretive assumptions that I mean, scripture may not be saying that. And so I'm a little, I'm open to various interpretations of Genesis. And one day, if I get settled on something, I, I would love to share it with you guys. Um, the other question you had was, and this was your first question, which will be your last question for today. Um, um, here it is. I've noticed many people don't believe in God because of evolution. Is evolution contrary to God? So th this is this is a fantastic question. This is actually a question I'm even more interested in than the other two because they're just about mere possibility. Is evolution contrary to God? Let me say this. I personally do not hold to, and I'm going to be very careful with my words here, even though many people will not catch that. I don't I personally, okay, personally, meaning I'm not going to tell all Christians they have to have this view. I personally do not hold to abiogenesis, that is life coming from non-life through natural means, and I do not hold to uh, universal common descent. That is to say, I don't have problems with speciation and things like that. So this is just in my own studies, my own like private little time on this stuff. I don't hold to universal common descent, all creatures coming from that, uh, you know, basically one, uh, one basic life form, and I don't hold to abiogenesis. Um, but let's pretend I did. And this is a question I've asked myself. I was like, what if I did believe, fully believed in the entire evolutionary, uh, neo-Darwinian evolutionary synthesis, like the, the current stuff. If I believed in that or in whatever version of evolution you want to throw out there that you consider to be the most modern and current and, and, and uh, relevant, would I conclude that God does not exist? Uh, and here's where I say, if I believed in that stuff to that degree, I would literally use it as evidence for God. Not only would it not convince me God doesn't exist, I would actually use it as active evidence to prove that God exists. And let me give you just one quick illustration as to why. Um, obviously, it's evidence for God if God makes the universe in six days and then creates all this massive variety of life. But on the alternate view, that the, the sort of very materialistic alternate view, that the universe just boomed into existence, we don't know how. We don't know why or anything. We just know it did, but it was just all the stuff and it was mostly just hydrogen molecules at first. And over time, you know, all this chemistry happened and happenstance happened and just the laws of physics and time turns it coalescing into galaxies that include like suns, right? And planets. And then we have some, and things like water and elements and different things like this and, and all these different sort of qualities that we see in creation. And then we have life spontaneously come into existence through purely naturalistic means that we have a very difficult time seeming to reproduce in any thorough sense. And then life spreads out into all the massive variety and we have earth in its particular location where it allows life to exist. Like if you didn't have Jupiter, we probably wouldn't be here, right? Like we need, that's like the cosmic vacuum cleaner pulling meteors and stuff into keep them from hitting your earth as much. It, we need to have a moon. We need to have a certain ratio of temperature closest to the sun uh, we're in like the galactic sweet spot, right? And so um, all these things are taking place, but also the incredible complexity of life. Imagine for a second if, if, if your DNA and protein folding and all these amazing things, they happen by pure happenstance from a, starting from a beginning point that was a, a giant explosion that produced a bunch of hydrogen atoms. Like take a minute and soak that in. I think it's only abundantly obvious that if the variety of human life and animal life and the amazing stuff we see in creation 
if that all happened from a single explosion that just... Obviously, that explosion was very carefully planned. It just seems obvious. And let me give you a, a simple example. Here's my cell phone. Imagine my cell phone happened from an explosion, right? That the explosion, and we maybe we could prove it. We could prove that the cell phone happened from an explosion and all the particles of glass, they kind of came together and the heat was just right that it sort of came into this flat, perfectly solid form. And all of the, the hardware and it kind of fell into place and the software was just from these random electrical signals that were happening at the time that sort of embedded the software into it. And everything just kind of fell in. What if we could prove that my cell phone had exploded into place? Wouldn't we not therefore be logically reasonable by saying, boy, somebody brilliant must have planned that explosion. <laughs> like that doesn't mean it was an accident. It means it was just even more brilliant because not only did they cause it to happen, but they caused it to happen through one act of creation, uh, this explosion. So I, I think that um, evolution would be evidence for God. And anybody who's like, like uh, Richard Dawkins is famous for saying that Charles Darwin came along and made it intellectually sustainable to be an atheist. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I don't think you've thought this through very much, man. Um, yeah, like it's it would just be a different way of imagining how God created all things and seeing his glory in creation. It, but I, I don't think it's accurate, but I would absolutely use it as evidence for God. Number five, this is coming in from Caleb McMurtry. And we have all 20 questions for you guys today. So I'm going to work through them all one at a time. But we've already got, we're full up on questions. I'm so sorry for those of you that put questions in and you don't get them in in time uh, or, we're, or we don't select them. One of the reasons why I'll mention this before I go to Caleb's question is because I may have already answered your question. Um, that's possible. And you can go to BibleThinker.org and you click on the search function if you want to search to see if I've answered one of your questions. And then there's two little windows that come up. And one of them, it says the clip search feature. You click on that, type in a couple words about your question. And we will search all of the videos I've done for timestamps to exactly where I answered a question about that issue. That's for free and for you. And I hope it helps. All right. Caleb McMurtry says, hi, Mike. I love your ministry. Uh, thanks. Me too. <laughs> it seems in Genesis 1, God created humanity and blesses them. Then later in Genesis 2, God creates Adam as a representative in Eden. Does scripture teach Adam was the first man? Um, it seems to teach Adam was minimally... Um, the genealogical uh, father of every human. Um, I think that I'm, I'm trying to word that carefully because we have things like the genealogies themselves. And then we have like in Adam, all die in Christ, all are made alive. And so it seems that if there are humans outside the garden, that they're probably, um, like somehow outside the purview of scripture. That, that's how it feels. But I mean, this is, again, this is Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 stuff where I'm like, I've, I, have, I have as many questions, if not more, probably more questions than I have answers on, on this passage. And one of the reasons is because we're reading stuff that's so hotly debated and I haven't had the time to look into all those issues where I'm also coming from a past where I feel like there was kind of a, like a really strict reading of Genesis in my own history but not a real careful reading of Genesis. Do, do you know what I mean? Sometimes people have a strict reading of a passage, but not a careful reading of a passage. And I've tried over the years to try to become more careful in my reading of scripture and help you to do the same. So one of the ways I protect you from my uncarefulness is to not talk too boldly about things I haven't had a chance to vet and go back over and make sure that I understand it correctly and biblically. 
So um, Adam seems to be connected to all living humans genetically. Okay, this is what uh, like one guy, um, Swami Das, who I don't really follow his stuff that much, but he he, but the term he uses is genealogical Adam, and he goes, yeah, Adam is genealogically related. This means that there's some genetic connection between every human and Adam, and that seems like that would be an easy hypothesis to push forward. Um, others would say that all humans came exclusively through Adam and Eve, and um, I would lean that way. Um, but it just seems like we have some scarcity of data in the in in the Old Testament that I'm not sure what I want to do with yet. So, so just I hate to do that to you guys. I I just don't know entirely what the right answer is. I'm going to read your question again, and then we'll um see if there's something else I should add. Um, this is question number five. Okay, Caleb, um, you said it seems gen in Genesis one God creates humanity and blesses them. Then later in Genesis 2, God creates Adam as a representative in Eden. Does scripture teach Adam was the first man? Okay. Um, let me just walk you through a little bit of the text on these issues before we move on. Genesis 1, God created man, this is verse 27, in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this to me is a summary passage. I'm just going to give you my short answer. A summary passage of God's creation of, of all things. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates sun and moon, stars, all this stuff. And then he makes man and says, hey, you're going to have dominion. You're going to be um, made in my image and representing me here. In Genesis 2, do we have the creation of a man or creation of the first man? And I, I think, let me give you one verse that's debated on this topic. So um, first God makes, um, here we go, verse five. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the ground, watered the whole face of the ground. Now some would say, oh, so Adam's the first man because there was no man to till the ground. But the thing is, Genesis 2, the, the debate will be, was, was this all of creation where there was no man? Or was this the Garden of Eden where there was no man? And that's going to change your understanding of like, say, how you interpret no man in verse 5. So you could say, well, it's all of creation because this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, right? This is, this is before any plant was in the earth and any field, any herb had grown. Okay, but the word earth could mean all of the planet earth or it could also mean very fairly it could mean just eden right and so god planted a garden eastward at eden and there he put the man whom he'd formed so these are some of the debates and i don't i don't personally have the solid answers for them i lean towards the more traditional views um but i do so with a bit of self-consciousness that i might have more to learn on these topics all right anonymous question coming in in a previous episode you stated that angels are not made in the image of God. Is that really something that we can state definitively? That's a great question. Um, I guess I want to spend some time thinking about that. What what brought me, let me just bring you to my own thought process. What in my history, in my experience, whether it was clear understanding of scripture or things I've assumed without realizing I was assuming it, what made me think angels were not in the image of God? So man's made in the image of God. Um, that's clear. I don't know of anywhere in scripture that says that angels are made in the image of God. Man is definitely different than angels. Like we're, we're really different than angels 
in scripture throughout throughout scripture so it wouldn't make sense to just transfer a quality we're told we have over to angels without a clear text saying it um, that would lean me towards thinking <laughs> i'm just walking you through the process guys <laughs> Some it's going to sound like i'm playing with with theology i'm not i'm just trying to understand my own thinking another uh thing to consider is um where scripture talks about some of the differences between humans and angels so angels in hebrews it says that they're they're ministers they're god's ministers they're they're his servants but it did differentiate humans from angels and jesus from angels in the book of hebrews in some pretty like fundamental ways about our, our function and our purpose and so so i'm, I'm going to suggest that scripture seems to offer a bit of flavor that like a consistent perspective that humans and angels are very different kinds of beings right man are made lower than angels so if we're all in god's image it doesn't really it just it doesn't quite click plus the image of god being here on earth that that seems to be something that's uniquely human as far as it it's only said of humans it's never said of non-humans the only reason i could think of why someone would say angels might be in the image of god is because they want to take the we in genesis where it says let us make man in our image and they want to say the us here is angels. Um, so here, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Now, some interpret this as to being angels or being a, the divine counsel even. Um, I don't take it that way, right? Because in verse 27, it says, so God made man in his own image and the image of God, he created them. It's in the us is seen a verse later as being in God's image, not in the image of God and angels and all these other things. I think the us is explained um, in other ways, in, in like the whole, the, 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 the thing people always mock. I think that there, there are hints of the Trinity in verse, hints of the Trinity, and it's very consistent with the Trinity, in verse 26 of Genesis 1, let us make man our image. And I also think that the idea of a plurality of like a majestic kind of plurality also makes more sense than thinking that we're made in the image of angels. Um, we're never called angels. We're not compared to angels. N nowhere, another example of this is, is man ever said to be in the image of angels? No, just God. So I would push back for those reasons. I, I guess, this. Is, see, what I would do is I would start a whole study and just take all these notes and refine all my points. But there's a, a few like active flow of consciousness thoughts for you. <laughs> Hope that helps. Uh, Peace over here says, does God and or Satan visit us in dreams? Well, I mean, God definitely has... Um, you say visited us like I mean I don't I mean that might bring in the concept that when you're dreaming you're actually like in some kind of realm in your dream and not just sort of visualizing or imagining things um, but has God you know spoken to people in dreams absolutely he even affirms it he even says like when he's talking to he's rebuking Aaron and Miriam for for coming against Moses and he's like you know when there's a prophet amongst you I, I speak to them in dreams so oftentimes God would speak to people in dreams absolutely um, can Satan visit us in dreams? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's, I mean, obviously God can do anything. So, and I don't want to say Satan can do whatever God can do. Well, if God can do that, Satan can. Like, that's, that's bad theology. Um, but we know that like one of the things that happens is Satan, quote, put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. So somehow Satan was actively working to try to like lead or guide judas in this betrayal of jesus we have jesus rebuking peter when peter says no you won't be crucified and jesus says get behind me satan you're not mindful of the things of god but the things of man but i don't know of a specific thing that says like 
Satan enters dreams. Um, there's definitely some way in which Satan can communicate with humans. Could that potentially be dreams? Sure. Could that be some other fashion? Sure. I'm I'm open to those things. I wouldn't I, I wouldn't give a definitive yes, but I couldn't rule out a no, based on at least what I understand in scripture. Yeah. Um, I also know that usually my dreams are just me. <laughs> so, um, for anybody out there who perhaps you're really, really into in trying to interpret all of your dreams, um, I think that that can actually be, it can become a problem because it's like reading tea leaves or something, right? Like the thing about reading tea leaves is that the tea leaves aren't actually saying anything, but you're going to read them anyway. And there's times where your dreams aren't saying anything, but you're going to read it anyway. And this can lead to reading your own fears or your own hopes into your dreams, which turns into prophecy that comes from your heart instead of the mouth of God. And so unless you know for sure that your dream is from the Lord, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't lean on it too much. And even if you did know that what you dreamt was from the enemy, I wouldn't lean on that at all. I mean, he's a liar. We're, me and my wife were watching Lord of the Rings for, an, uh, it's been a while since I did a Lord of the Rings analogy. So here, here comes. Um, and there's this <clears throat> consistent thing, this theme that you get in the movie where um, Sauron, the big baddie, he's manipulating people by showing them things. So he does this in a couple ways, but one of them is these little, these little black like crystal ball type things. And these are communication. They're, imagine they're like, they're like a, it's like a video call <laughs> between the two people who, who use these. I believe they're called the Palantir. So these little devices. One of the people who uses them is a guy named Denethor. Denethor, you guys, we just watched the movie, okay? So you're, you've, like, you're such a nerd, man. Okay, whatever. So Denethor, I mean, I read the books when I was a kid. So I, before before you all saw the movie, I was already a fan. So I'm, I'm, I'm real and you're fake. Um so Denethor uh, is the king or the steward of this 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 city that's can potentially fight against Sauron. But what he does is he uses this palantir that Denethor keeps using to try to see visions of what's happening around the world. But he uses it to direct him to just see things that would make him feel like he's hopeless and lost. And so by trying to interpret these things that are being sent to him ultimately through the bad guy, Sauron, he ends up being deceived. Right? And then Sauron tries the same thing with another character in the movie, a guy named Aragorn. <laughs> I've never gone into this detail on one of these analogies. So Aragorn's sitting there, and he grabs the Palantir to like, tell Sauron, like, oh, I'm coming for you, buddy. And Sauron shows him a vision of the woman he loves dead. Now, it was half true. She was dying. And he used that to try to discourage him, to try to beat him up. And Aragorn did the thing Denethor never did, which is he, he decided to ignore it. And just go forward anyways and just charge into battle and that ended up being the thing that saved the day what i'm suggesting is if you have a if you have a vision that's from the enemy don't interpret it ignore it end of story you just ignore it whatever purpose it could have it, it could only be negative don't don't be like well i'm interpret this dream that came from me just ignore it ignore it is the rule um whenever the enemy speaks you ignore him <laughs> all right um you hid k5555 says in acts 8 9 do you think simon magus was aware that he wasn't right with God before Peter rebuked him. Some commentaries assume that he was never truly repentant. Some say he was genuine. Acts 9, 8, 9. Now we're going to back up a little bit and read this. Okay, so they're, 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 the gospel's going out. People are getting saved. Pagans are coming to the Lord. And we read about this guy in Acts 8. There was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria claiming that he was someone great. 
So he's using sorcery to try to like build his reputation. Um, so this is this is evil stuff, right? To whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, "This man is the great power of God." Simon, in other words, spoiler alert, he's used to people looking up to him as a spiritual giant, even if it's an ungodly version of that. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. The context of verse 12 we might miss is that a lot of the people who believed in Simon ended up getting saved. Simon's old followers are now part of the church, not following him anymore. Then verse 13, Simon himself also believed. Remember that it says he believed. We'll come back to that. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and, the, and signs which were done. Here, here's a guy who did all this witchcraft stuff, which was uh, sorcery stuff, which was a mixture of probably fake and some actual spiritual demonic stuff. But he's, he's not known anything of the true power of God that we see through the miracles God's doing in the early church. Now is where it goes bad. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they'd come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Nothing's changed with Simon, except Simon has just recognized this is where power is, right? Um, so he says, give me this power also that anyone whom I lay hand, on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Consider for a moment that Simon thought it would actually work. Like he saw these apostles and he thought, yeah, I could buy their, their tricks. Just like as a sorcerer, I purchased the tricks of other sorcerers. I could buy this too. He didn't, it doesn't mean he didn't think it was spiritual or real. He just thought that that's how it worked. This implies a lack of repentance over his past sins. It does imply something there. Um, and you have to reconcile that with the fact that it says he believed earlier. We'll come right back to that in two seconds. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. This implies that he's no longer, he's not saved, never was saved or is no longer saved. It does imply it. Your money perish with you. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray to God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. You know, then he says to them, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you've spoken may come upon me. So when they testified and preached, they just, they go on and they're preaching in other places. That's the end for Simon. So here's what we know of Simon. It says he believed. Later on, he did some things that revealed that his heart was not right with God. This is how I interpret it. So, Upon realizing that his proclamation of faith lacked a genuineness in his heart, the apostles respond by saying, you need to repent that you could be forgiven. What I'm going to suggest is the scenario is this. When people say, I believe in Jesus, neither me nor you nor even the apostles would immediately know if that was genuine or not. Later on, as he lived his life, there was such an grievous sin, such a terrible sin, that it became apparent to the apostles, wait a minute. This guy's not even right with God. I think that the Bible seems to treat people this way, that when they proclaim they believe in Christ, you treat them as a Christian unless there's some real grievous error that might demonstrate that you should be doubting their proclamation of faith, in which case you call them to repentance. That's all I see there. I don't think that when it says he believed, um, we're, we're getting a statement about whether he was saved at that moment or not. It's telling us 
you know, from their perspective, how things were going. That's how I interpret that passage. Um, yeah. Trippy Penguin has a question, says, is it possible to overstudy scripture and theology? I feel like I constantly burn myself out on God's word, but I also feel, ter feel terrible if I go too long, like a day or two without studying it. Um, yes, it's possible to overstudy scripture and theology. I don't, I don't see how we could not say yes to that question. Um, imagine that, you know, me and my wife, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend time with you because I'm just going to study theology all the time. Like, we're not going to sit and watch Lord of the Rings <laughs> together. We're not going to, like, eat meals together. Because there are times where I'm studying, guys, and, and it's, I try to do it less now than I used to, where I, I eat my meals sitting here in the office while I'm studying and working on stuff. Um, but that can be unhealthy, especially if, if you have kids, especially. Um, but it can be unhealthy. You can do anything too much. You can do anything too much. Like you need to sleep. You need to have days of rest. You need to spend time with family and friends. You need to be in fellowship in church. You need to have some like R, like just chill, goof off time. I think that this is healthy. Um, that's not work, right? That's what the part of the Sabbath was. Is like okay, not not work today, not work today, right? And there's even though I don't think we're under the Sabbath, there's still principles that apply there about rest that we need, this ebb and flow in life. And so yeah. You know, there's on one side people who will study theology for three minutes and get exasperated and quit, and they'll never really progress in their knowledge. And there are others I've seen who really will spend seven, eight, nine hours a day thinking they have to read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible, study theology. And it's like they're going to quit their job and they're not going to talk to family. So obviously there seems to be some balance that's that belongs here. Um, if you feel like you're burning yourself out, um, part of that might be just you need to grow in your patience, right? This is something I'm always dealing with is growing in my own patience that I'm willing to keep studying and keep reading things even though I feel tired and just over this issue or this topic, especially as I read debates and stuff people have on this. Um, oftentimes I'll spend hours and hours reading. I, you know, I, I read a paper this morning someone sent to me and it was it was all, in the end, it was like, okay, I got about 10 seconds worth of information out of that like 12-page paper. That's just how it, how it is. <laughs> um, but... There's still time for other things in your life. Um, I, I hope that God gives you wisdom on how to balance those things out. Um, you might be burning yourself out, not because of the lack of beauty and goodness of God's word, but because you're just spending all your time doing one thing. And as humans, we are designed for more than one thing. <laughs> so Lord help you with working through that. Douglas S. says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Since God is not the author of evil, and didn't create a kingdom with temptation or evil beings. How did Lucifer's pride and rebellion come about? Well, Douglas, um, we're given so little data on this that it becomes a little difficult to answer these questions. And as a Christian, you should always hold out the possibility that you just say, I don't know. <laughs> like that you have a question, you just don't know the answer to it. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to default there, though. I don't want to, my starting position isn't, I don't know. And I'm not going to bother spending any, you know, brain matter trying to figure it out. I, I think that that is a lazy position. So let's, let's talk about it a bit. Um, we know that God's not the author of evil, right? God didn't create a kingdom. You said with temptation or evil beings. Um, I think I would agree with that statement. Temptation, as long as temptation is not opportunity, temptation is, is, um, inclination in my own heart towards sin. So the big debate is, not me, born with sin nature, living my life, having committed a countless number of sins in my life. I have even greater inclinations towards sin in certain areas because I've fed it so many times. 
Like that all makes total sense. But Lucifer, Satan. Okay, let let me let me say Satan here. Okay, Luc debate whether really Lucifer probably is not the best name for him. Um, I'll, some other time. <laughs> but the um, the you know Satan, the devil, right? He's initially one of God's holy angels, and all we know is he chooses to rebel against God, and he takes others with him in his rebellion. And if you take as I do, and not everybody does. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, these two passages, to refer to Satan himself, then we get a little bit of insight about what he was going after. It doesn't tell us why he started desiring it, but it tells us what he was going after, which is, I want to be like God. And it was the same thing he tempted Eve and Adam with in the garden when he's like, yeah, you'll be like God. That's what he wanted too. So how did it start? What was the initial cause? Well, I mean, it came from within him, but how could that happen if he's a perfect holy being? Well, I mean... It seems that he's not perfect and holy the way God is perfect and holy. God is perfect and holy in his every, every desire, every motive, everything's perfect and holy. It seems that the angels were holy in a sense of being um, set apart for the purposes of God and holy in the sense, perhaps holy is the wrong word here, of not having any innate sinful nature. But it didn't mean apparently the impossibility of simply choosing to sin. There just seems to be a decision he makes. Now, I, I don't I don't fully know how to explain where that came from, except that I'll say this. To, to say that Satan has an opportunity to choose sin is not to say that God created temptations within him. I think that this is a disconnect. I don't think that God has to make him with the desires for sin in order for Satan to choose sin. I think that if we have genuine free will and we're not just the results of our desires played out naturally, naturalistically, but I have an actual free will choice, then the answer would end up being not how did God make him with what temptation God made it, but rather God made him with a genuine free will and he genuinely chose. So then the responsibility, the, 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 the cause of Satan's fall would be Satan's choice. And you're like, but why did he choose it? And the problem with pressing too hard on the why did he choose it question is because we're more and more pushing away from his choice onto some other external cause when I think it was his choice that was the cause. So I would I would probably just stop answering the question at, the, at that point. Um, anonymous question here says, I think sexual intimacy prior to marriage clothed... Uh, you guys just... Okay, kids, <laughs> parents, alert, <laughs> mature moment here. Okay. Uh, I think sexual intimacy prior to marriage, i.e. clothed sexual touching or rubbing is sinful, but my fiance disagrees. What do I do as a soon-to-be husband when we disagree on what is sinful? Well, I can think of several solutions. One, get married tomorrow. Problem solved. <laughs> um, two, you, you go to Romans 14. And let's see here. I'm going to read a section of scripture that I think I would want your fiance ultimately to work through, but also would hopefully give some understanding um, to both of you to understand each other where you're at on these issues. Let me let me say this. I, I, I agree with you that touching and rubbing sexual body parts, like, you know, you know what I'm talking about, y'all, <laughs> that this is something that's wonderful and good in marriage and it's bad outside of marriage and it should be saved for marriage, okay? Because it's overtly sexually intimate behavior and that kind of behavior is meant for the confines of marriage. I, I don't think that it's okay to do everything up until, you guys, again, parent alert, you got three seconds to turn, to pause this thing. 
I don't think it's I don't think it's okay to do everything up to penetration before marriage. That is that is exactly what 16-year-olds think with their half-developed brains and their overly active hormones, but that doesn't seem to be a biblical ethic at all. And so I, I think that I would agree with you, but even if you can't get her to agree, that's okay. Share Romans 14. Um, let me read it to you guys. Quick survey of Romans 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith, and that's a term that Paul's going to use to describe somebody who, who can't do something that they should be able to do, that God has given them freedom to do, but they feel bad about it, so they won't do it. Like, say, eating meat, sacrificed to some idol that they're not even connected to in any way. So um, receive one who's weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Hey, don't make the focus fixing their convictions. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who's weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Hey guys, just disagree and stop being divisive over the issue. Um, who were you to judge another servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for it is for God is able to make him stand. So he went from the subject of meat. Now he talks about days. And this is about like, say, Sabbath observances or feast days. Here we are. It's Good Friday. Do you have to do something special on Good Friday as a Christian? He says, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. What do we do about it? Yeah, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Why? Because it's a secondary issue. Like, don't freak out about it, guys. Christians should do this on Easter Sunday. Well, how about you just do whatever you want to do and stop freaking out? <laughs> um, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He, he who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. The, the center of this issue when Christians have different convictions is that Jesus is Lord. You're not the Lord of that person, but Jesus is your Lord. So make sure that you don't violate your conscience before God because Christ is your Lord. And that's the whole point here. And this other person, they, you know, you think that that conviction issue differently. So even if you can't agree on an issue, don't try to be the Lord over someone else's life on the issue. That That's a lesson. But why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall stand, all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess, shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. Here's a resolution for every Christian. Not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. When your fiance tells you, you feel like we shouldn't do this till we're married. I feel like it's okay. I, I think she's objectively wrong here. But even if you can't convince her of that biblically, like there's there's no way that the, that the authors of the apostles themselves, if they showed up and were like, oh yeah, you could totally do all that rubbing action and that's totally okay. <laughs> like you're not married, but that's okay unmarried people can do that like there's no way that this would be the case but even if you couldn't convince her of that you could at least for the sake of your relationship say hey this is my conviction please don't put stumbling blocks and causes to fall in my in my way don't tempt me with things that i can't do you you get the issue of like say if, if one person's an alcoholic you just don't drink in front of that person it's grace it's kindness to them um let me read on there's more I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus there's nothing unclean of itself. He's talking about food, by the way. <laughs> food and days. He's not talking about 
physical intimacy. That That's a category very different than this. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Even if them eating wouldn't normally be sin, it's violating their conscience, so don't mess them up. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Oh, you have a craving, you're hungry, but it's going to cause your brother to stumble. Well, get over it, man. Your brother's more important than that. All things indeed are pure. But it's evil for the man who eats with offense. And you get the analogy I'm offering you. Um, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. That's all of Romans 14. <laughs> here's here's my, my short answer conclusion in case I, I missed anything. Um, clearly overtly sexual behaviors, right? Okay, someone just kisses or pecks or, or okay, how long can you kiss? All those debates I'm not going to even enter into. But clearly overtly sexual behavior, that is reserved for marriage, full stop, period. That's a Christian biblical ethic. The world hates it. Like they don't just disagree, they actually hate it. It may be that your fiance has absorbed worldly ethics and thinks they're okay. Part of you standing strong in your obedience to God means you stand strong regardless of what consequences come because this compromise will just lead to more. But even if you cannot convince her, you could share with her at least this passage for the time being to say, look, you won't agree with me, but don't cause me to stumble in my conscience before God. And you could just get married tomorrow. <laughs> and if you're like, well, no, I refuse to get married tomorrow. I have priorities about my wedding, but, but I want to be like, very sexual in the meantime and i'm just like you're just that is that is a carnal mind and it's good to confront those issues right now in this season of being a fiance because they're going to come up again in other ways not in the related to the sex category but in other ways after you're married uh andre uh, b says hi pastor mike generational sin exodus 34 verse 7 verses Ezekiel 18.20, can you please explain how we should understand this apparent contradiction? Thank you. Okay, Exodus 34, verse 7. Um, this is God speaking about, uh, we're, we're getting like his kindness, his, let me just back up and give you a couple extra verses, right? Uh, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And God's speaking to Moses and says, and the Lord, uh, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, here's what he says, the Lord the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Everything in that section is all about God's like graciousness, like his forgiving and his kindness and his perpetual love for others, his long-suffering. But then it's qualified by no means clearing the guilty. God, he forgives, but he still deals with the guilty. Well, how does that work? Ultimately, it works in Christ, right? Christ takes the punishment of my sin. And so he's forgiving me, but he's not clearing the guilty. He's, he's not overlooking my guilt. He's dealing with my sin that I might be forgiven. Um, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Oh, 
well, so what does he mean by, he doesn't clear the guilty, he, in, he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. I think that this is only for the children who continue in the sin of their parents. I think that that is, I think that is absolutely implied. Look at any generation of, of the Bible who repents of the sins that their parents committed and watch them be forgiven and restored, right? So we see revivals in the people of Israel, that sort of thing. So this, I think, is talking about children who continue in the iniquity of their parents that is going to be visited upon them. He's going to continually be against sin. Um, but scripture will also go on to say, but he keeps mercy for thousands of generations. And then that is, of course, the um, that's the parallel. That's the reason for the three to four generations versus mercy for thousands of generations. It's meant to emphasize God's grace, not actually God's judgment, but to recognize also that we don't ignore God's judgment because of God's grace. They're both true. Um, the other passage you have was Ezekiel 18. Um, and this is this is uh, instructions on how the law is to take place. Let me just back up a little bit on this too. Um, let me think of how far I want to back up. It's kind of a long, long section. Um, oh, it's a bit too long, and for the sake of time today, I won't be able to get into all of it. So, I'll just I'll just try to do a, a, an okay job talking about this one part. Um, so they complain to God. This is God saying, hey, you guys are complaining to me. Why should the son uh, not bear the guilt of the father? And the response is because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul, of the, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And then he explains it more. He's like, yeah, if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he's committed, and he keeps my statutes and he does what's right, he shall surely live and not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed will be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he's done. He shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all in that the wicked should die, says the Lord? And not that he should turn from his ways and live. But when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he's done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness to which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them, he shall die. Okay, so when you look at the whole passage, you realize there's more going on than the son won't bear the guilt of the father and the father the guilt of the son. He then even goes on to say, even, this, even the father who's guilty, if he turns from that stuff, he can be forgiven. <clears throat> God's just saying, when people are continuing in sin, I will deal with them individually according to it. But um, <clears throat> this is a great, not, not contradiction, but compliment to the, to the visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third or fourth generation passage. It compliments it because it, it helps us confirm that's only if those children continue in the sins of their parents. So <clears throat> is that, quote, generational sin? I don't know what generational sin means anymore. Because here's the thing. My mom, my dad did stuff. Unless I'm doing it, it's not generational sin. It's their generation's sin. So unless the sin is actively going on in your generation, it doesn't matter. So the phrase generational sin starts to not mean anything. It's true that children tend to fall into the same sins of their parents, and that might be what Ezekiel's getting, or you know, um, Exodus was getting at. But God is absolutely willing to, for the for the children or for the for the sinner who's doing it, to change things the minute that they repent and turn. So I think that um, some people call it generational curses. I think that's an even worse term that doesn't seem to apply 
at least in those passages. All right, let's go to question 13. All right. Andre, uh, oh, that was Andre. Uh, Jordan Arama says, are you still saved if you can't stop drinking? Um, Jordan, I, I think that um, as, a, as a pastor, my first thought is, I fear that a question like this is so that someone can stay, and I'm not saying it's you, could be it could be anybody you could be talking about a, a buddy who tells you hey i'm still saved even though I, I i won't stop my alcoholism um my fear is that a question like this what's behind it is i'm going to stay in my sin i just really want someone to tell me it's okay and that's something i can't do i'm not going to tell you that you're absolutely not saved but i'm going to tell you this in corinth in first corinthians i think it's 16 9 um and it tells us The following. It's not First Corinthians sixteen nine. Six nine. I'm so bad with numbers. <clears throat> um, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now is Paul saying that some of them are these things? Is that why he's saying them? Don't be deceived. If you as a Christian are a drunkard, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on to say such were some of you. So he seems to be implying that they don't do these things anymore. I think if you back up a little bit, you'll, you'll see Paul's point is actually not to tell Christians whether how to evaluate if they personally are still saved based upon their ongoing sin issues. Not that there's no point to evaluate that, but it seems like his point is instead to say, look, there are kinds of people that are not saved. And if you as a Christian are living that kind of lifestyle, that's scary. And that's my answer. My answer is not a Christian who has a drinking problem that they won't, they won't stop, that they are automatically not saved. That's not my point. Nor can I tell them they're automatically saved. They are in a gray area and I'm going to tell them that's a gray area. You're scary. You should repent of this thing. And I don't know any other comfort I can give them other than, yeah, you should, you should repent of that thing. I don't run around saying, do you have that sin? You're not saved. You're not saved. You're not saved. I just want to say, hey, you're doing the kind of thing that the people who don't inherit the kingdom do. You name the name of Christ, but you do the thing that's scary. Ultimately, it's going to be up to the Lord to decide. I do think there can be such a thing as a carnal Christian. I think they may be saved. And they might not. And that's why they're in a gray area. So I can't give them the judgment. And as much as I want to bring them comfort by telling them like, hey, no, man, you're still forgiven. God's grace is upon you. Imagine saying that to everybody in the world and what a horrible preacher you are. I just tell everyone in the world, you believe in Jesus? Don't worry. Everything's fine. I don't care how much sin you ongoingly commit. You can't say that because you know that at least some portion of those people are definitely not saved. Nor can you say every single one of you who struggles with daily sin in a, in, a, in a significant fashion, like maybe even on the list in 1 Corinthians, you're all not saved. I, I can't say that either. I just want to say, don't be deceived, guys. This is the kind of behavior of people that aren't saved. That's scary. So I sit there. I don't answer the question. I sit there in the gray, and I, I want to push them into the gray as well. Um, I'm also concerned about the phrase, are you still saved if you can't stop drinking? You can stop drinking. I didn't say it was easy. I didn't say it wasn't incredibly difficult. 
I didn't say it wasn't something you tried a thousand times and failed, but you can. Number 14. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Does that mean God controls the king's free will? Um, I don't think so. So for a couple reasons. Um, Proverbs 21 is, is, of course, it's a proverb. So it's meant to be taken as pearls of wisdom that you think about and you ponder and you work through. It's Proverbs is principles. It's not exactly rules. That's good to know. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. I think the basic idea here is that God is sovereign even over the kings. And and when they do things like Cyrus helping Israel, um, that is ultimately there's something God is doing behind that. That God's sovereignty is seen as sort of this masterful, not puppetry, where he's simply controlling everybody. Right? That's puppetry. Is My puppet has no free will. It's rather more like... Um, um, God is so skilled at setting up and organizing all of creation and inst in, you know putting different people in power, knowing everything that they would do in any given scenario, that he uses all of the actions they take for his purposes. So did God tell Pilate, like make Pilate say, yes, I'll crucify Jesus? Or did God bring, in a, bring about a situation in life where he knew Pilate would crucify Jesus and he would use us for his glory? I, I see it that way. It's, it's not a puppetry thing. It's a masterful working of God's sovereignty in creation. So it doesn't, it doesn't violate free will at all. But another reason for why I would push against that view that it violates man's free will, that God controls man's free will, is because God tells kings to do things that kings refuse to do all the time. Right? Like, God, I want you to do this, but you don't do it. So I see that God's, I want this, but you're going to do that. But guess what? My sovereignty will make sure even that bad decision, I'm going to ultimately use it for good. That's how I would balance those out. Chris uh, Garrison says, how was Solomon considered to be the wisest man on earth and yet he too turns away from God in his old age? He doesn't seem to recognize his sinful ways. He doesn't even ask God to relent. Um, so wisdom in understanding and capacity is not the same thing as living it out. And that is the difference with Solomon. Solomon was wise in his capacity to comprehend and understand issues. But he didn't always do wise things in his activity. An example of this could be compare <clears throat> um, Proverbs to the actual life of Solomon. So Solomon marries hundreds of women. He's got like 300 wives, 700 concubines. And then he writes Proverbs and he says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. I'm going to quote here, New King James Version, right? Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breast satisfy you always. He didn't do that. Not at all. But he wrote it because he had wisdom he didn't live. And so that's that's the thing about Solomon. He has wisdom. He, he sometimes makes decisions in accordance with that wisdom. And Israel's greatly blessed. But he also makes grave errors. And the scripture talks about this, about how he... Um, married all these women and they pulled Israel away from God and brought in idolatry and stuff like that. And it wasn't just because he wanted women. It was also political deals to get power. And it was, it was bad news. It was bad news. But 
um, does, did Solomon ever repent? Well, we don't know that he did or didn't because we just don't have a lot of details about that part of his life, about the ending part of his life. Like, did he at some point was like, this was so bad. What we do have is a couple hints where he writes things in the book of Proverbs about how a man should live and behave. And it's not the same as how he actually behaved. And so that seems to be that he's, he has a negative attitude about his own actions in those cases. So there's a soft case for perhaps a repentance or at least a negative attitude about those choices. So Solomon's wisdom in capacity was not the same as the wisdom he actually lived out in his life. And that I think explains the difference. Jonathan Vega says, Hey Mike, I met some Muslims who were evangelizing and I went up to challenge them, uh, challenge their beliefs. They invited me to Ramadan, to a Ramadan dinner at a mosque. Should I go or would that be a spiritual trap? Yes, it's a trap and maybe you should go. <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes you go into the trap, you know, for good purposes. Um, I think the question is really soberly, not how spiritually strong is your faith. My faith in Jesus is so strong. How good is your wisdom and discernment when dealing with spiritual deceptions? And if that is good and you have knowledge and you have understanding and you're not just going to blindly go in there to go and get like, uh, you know, indoctrinated. But rather, you're going to go in understanding Islam and understanding Christianity and understanding Muslims, which is three totally different issues. Islam and Muslims are two different issues, right? I want to understand Islam, the doctrines, the teachings, the history, the claims, the beliefs, the apologetics, the arguments. But I also want to understand Muslims so that I can reach them because they're just people I want to reach with the gospel of Christ. So if you can go in with that awareness and you can be a skilled ambassador for Jesus in that environment you should go. But if you're going to step in and you're not ready and you're not prepared to understand those things and talk about them, then I would say you probably shouldn't go. That would be my, my, you know, off the cuff response. So yes, it's a trap and maybe you should go. <laughs> All right. Number 17, non-playable character says, I watched the whole marriage series and didn't find anything about this, but my wife and I have been married eight years through the court and she claims God doesn't acknowledge it. Thoughts and thank you. Um, I guess uh, what I would want to do is I want to pull aside you and your wife and ha actually just have her explain. And I mean, I would just start with questions like, help me understand the reasons why you think God doesn't acknowledge it. Um, now, what's hinted at in your question is that the reason is because the court, we got married through the court, not through the church. Maybe maybe that's the thing. Like we got married through the court. It was just like a paper thing and not through the church. Um, and I would say that's a, that's a really terrible reason to try to invalidate a marriage. Um, you guys made a commitment to each other. The two, the two became one. You consummated your marriage. Like this is as much of a formula for marriage as we see anywhere in the Bible. It was acknowledged by the community. You went to the court to make an official proclamation of it. Whether you had a spiritual leader there is completely irrelevant to me. It is true in our modern times that we have pastors for marrying and burying. These are like two of the things. Like if you become ordained as a pastor, like as I am now, I can legally marry and bury, uh, especially Mary. That's the one I, mean, I guess, I guess you, anybody could do a funeral, but, uh, but marriage, you know, I've, I've signed marriage certificates, right. And, and you guys know, you can't ask me to come to your wedding. <laughs> Some people have been asking, I'm like, I, I can't, I have to study. That's all I do now. Um, but, um, the, uh, the idea that we have to have a pastor there to do the wedding, that's cultural. And it's not even culturally consistent because we see a court wedding or a court marriage, as just as officials with a pastor. People just like it when they have a pastor there to affirm the wedding. But you don't need it. It's not necessary. It's not required. You could you could 
yeah, I think that you should have some acknowledgement from the community. So like a private little marriage where two teenagers go like, we want to, we want to sleep together. I, I accept you as my wife. I accept you as my husband. Now we can sleep together. And they never even tell anybody about it. Like, yeah, I've, I've seen that happen. Literally. That's fake. That's not real marriage. But a marriage where you go to a courthouse, you get the documentation, you're taking steps, whatever they are, you're taking steps to say to the community, we're married now. I have there's no way that that's invalid. I, I, I don't understand that. But the reason why I would start with questions with, with, with your wife is because I'd want to find out if there's other reasons that she's got in her head that need to be addressed for her to work through these, these issues. And I'm just going to wildly guess as someone who's just lived life that there are other reasons that are not expressed in your question and those may have to be addressed separately. Um, Chris Boswell says, I saw a video where you said three days and three nights was a Jewish idiom. Is 40 the same? Or is the Bible referring to 40 as just a long time that can be tangible? 40 days, 40 nights, 40 years, etc. God bless. Okay, so um, to catch everybody up to speed on this, I do think that the phrase three days and nights is a Jewish idiom, meaning it didn't actually have to be three full days and three full nights but rather it could be three days, any part of three days. It could be the ending of one day, a full day, and the beginning of the other day, and they would call that three days and three nights. And there is actually good evidence for this. I know how weird it sounds to us, but idioms always sound weird, right? So like imagine if, um, I'll use an American idiom here. Imagine if I taught a study, I taught a message, and someone goes like, Mom, Mike, you really hit it out of the park with that message. Outside of our culture, without baseball and things like sports analogies, you're going to read that a thousand years later and go, Mike hit it out of the park. What did he hit out of what park? He was, a, it was a virtual study. There was not even a park involved. Some kind of real, real knucklehead, real fool must've said this. We won't understand it because we, idioms always sound strange outside your culture. It is a like demonstrably true that you could say three days and three nights to refer to say Friday to Sunday even if it's Friday after dark to sun or after uh, say afternoon to Sunday morning. And you could call that three days and three nights. Um, so that seems to be an idiom. Now it does, does the work, does 40 work the same way? I don't know if 40 is an idiom for something so broad as could be 40 days, 40 nights, 40 years could be anything. I don't think that it would be that broad, just like three days and three nights wouldn't be so broad as to represent three weeks, right? Um, or half a day, you wouldn't call that three days and three nights. Like, you know, I had to, you know, had to at least be loosely connected and then they would use the term. So, um, that, that, that's just too much of a stretch. Now I think, you know, they're, they're willing to be loose, it seems. So they might say 40 when it was really 38 or 42 or 43 or something like that. Um, they might just say 40, but we do this in our culture too. It's easy to understand. We're rounding, we're using a round number. I do that all the time. Uh, so yeah, uh, but I don't think you could say 40 days and it meant 40 years. But there could be like a looseness to it. Yeah, unless there was a context, right? The, the days in Daniel seem to represent years. The weeks represent weeks of years. But there's, there's context that's kind of forcing that upon us. It's not like we're just kind of saying it always means that. We're just saying it means that in this passage because there's indicators there. Not an idiom, but an actual... Uh, intentional thing with signs in the passage. All right. Hopefully I didn't just make everything more confusing. All right. Child of God has a question. Hi, Mike. If a person believes in the gospel that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, but they don't believe that Jesus was God, just a higher spiritual being, are they Christian? So they believe Jesus died 
and rose again. They don't believe he's God. They, what do they mean by higher spiritual being? Um, what do they mean by higher spiritual being? That, that'd be the first question I would ask them is I would just like, hey, and I would, just, you know, if it was me, if I was just sitting down with my friend, help me understand your perspective. What do you mean by higher spiritual being? When they tell you their view, read it, read it back to them, state it back to them in the simplest terms possible and then ask, is that right? So if they say, oh, well, I just, I mean, you know, he's exalted. He's like beyond, he's beyond humans. You know, he's, he's a spiritual being. Okay. So you're saying like, he's sort of in a nebulous sense. Like he's a, he's a great spiritual being. Like, cause we both agree actually about that. So what qualities do you think he has as a spiritual being? Oh, well, like, I don't know. I mean, like, what do you mean? Well, is he, is he, is he eternal? Has he always been around or did he come into existence at some point? Oh, I think he came into existence. Ah, so you believe Jesus is a creative being. That's a pretty serious error. <laughs> but now I understand your perspective. Or, oh, I think he's eternal, right? Um, you know, and you start pushing on their view a little bit to gather gather the details, what they believe about him. He's created. Is there a limit to his power as a great spiritual being? Does he, did he always have that power? What was his role in creation? I'm just going to ask him all these kinds of questions to gather data so I can then respond to them. But in the end... If you have somebody who's confused about who Christ is, they're uncertain about certain details, I'm not going to doubt their salvation. They're just insufficiently informed. But if they overtly deny the deity of Christ, then I think there's a serious problem. And let me explain why why I think this relates to the gospel, even though it's not about the cross and the resurrection. Because it's about the person on the cross and the person who rose. If I say that Jesus isn't God, he's not deity, he's not God with us. If I forcefully deny that, I take away the deity of Christ, am I truly believing in Jesus? Because that's part of who he is. So imagine you say you believed in me. I believe in Mike. It's just, and then you describe me. Mike, he's a 12-year-old girl in, in rural Indiana who makes YouTube videos about Barbie dolls. Right? When you're using my name, but you're not really believing me anymore. You're believing in some other thing you've created that doesn't fit me. And the nature of Christ as, as being God with us is so core to his identity that I start to ask this question. When you believe in Jesus, his death and resurrection, but you describe Jesus as not, not being God, is that really Jesus? Like if you take the deity of Christ away from Jesus, is it even Jesus anymore? And now it feels like a different Jesus. And that's why it's, that, that deeply concerns me. So being fuzzy about the deity of Christ... Yeah, probably people believing in Jesus all the time that are fuzzy about the details, but overtly denying and rejecting the deity of Christ feels like a rejection of Jesus himself. And yeah. Duchess of Mischief has a question. Uh, last one for today. Hi, Mike. So I am a legal adult and I currently still live in my parents' home. I'm looking at moving out in the near future, but my parents believe that young women shouldn't leave the home until they're married. Where do you draw the line between personal convictions and the command to honor your parents? Um, I, I actually really love questions like this because they're difficult. Um, <laughs> and, and I think about this kind of stuff all the time. So where do I draw the line? Here's how I process it. There are clear indications, right, of um, a, a child in the home is under their parents for sure. A married person must leave their parents actually says fathers leave or husbands leave your father and mother rejoin to your wife the idea here is that you you will often be torn between loyalty between your parents and your spouse pick your spouse over and over again 
right? Don't not if they're asking you to sin against your parents, that kind of thing. But when there's needs on both sides, you prioritize the need of your spouse, not your parents. That's how it works. Like that's or 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 your marriage has got a bunch of issues that you won't acknowledge are because your loyalties are divided. Just throwing it all out there, um, and I'm not complaining about my personal life. Me, me and my wife, I think, do this fantastically. Um, I think we do it absolutely fantastically because we we took our cues from scripture from the time we got married, and um, <clears throat> so. The honor of your honoring your parents always continues be in, throughout your age, but obedience to parents does not always continue throughout age. So where do you draw the line? Where does it go from obedience to honoring? Like I still honor you, parent, but I don't have to obey everything you say. But I'm always going to honor you. Yeah, I think it's when you stop being a child. But when do you stop being a child? Well, if you're like 15 and you move out and get married and you start at your own farm, it starts then. If you're 18 and you move out and get married, it starts then. If you're 27 and you're still living at home and you're single, you're in this strange gray area. And so here I want to create like an additional category. I'm honoring my parents by obligation of my age. I don't, I don't have to obey them, but because I live in their home and I live th because of their, their, their sustaining me, I still have to obey them. So the point at which they stop providing for you is the point at which you don't have to obey. I think that this is at least one general rule that seems like it helps when you move out you move out of the realm of obedience to parents as well. And that that seems like it's legit to me. Um, now, do you have to move out and get married? No, uh, that seems like a, a strange burden to place. And I'm sorry, I think your parents are just wrong here that a young woman shouldn't leave the home until she's married. Like that might seem like a good idea in some cases, but Paul talks about singleness allowing you to serve in, in, in ministry more. Let me, let me read to you 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about this, and it's about men and women, um, and it's about singleness. So look at the implications this has for someone in your situation. Um, I suppose it's good for those who are not married because of the present distress that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. There was some present distress that was going on. It was just easier not to get married at the time. But even if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they do not. They have none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of the world, of this world, is passing away. So we're supposed to live like we're living for the future coming kingdom, not just for this world. But I want you to be without care. Here's an interesting thing about singleness. He who, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. I make all sorts of, um, I set aside things, ministry things, so that I might, you know, have a better marriage. And I think that's what you should do when you're married. Um, you don't sacrifice your marriage on the altar of ministry. You, you, you seek to be a better spouse because you're a Christian. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy in both body and spirit. But she who's married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul seems to think your singleness allows you more opportunity for ministry. It allows you more opportunity for ministry. Now, ministry included 
traveling and doing evangelism and church planting and women were if a young woman who's not married is required to stay home at her parents house until she gets married how can singleness open new doors to greater ministry if you're required to stay under the same roof forever it doesn't make sense it just doesn't make sense so what i'm going to suggest is um I think your parents are wrong. I think what they have is a cultural requirement they're placing on you. And the point at which you do move out whenever that is, I think that that's a decision you can make if you're old enough and you're capable. Um, that you you just you just say, yeah, I, I, just, I disagree. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have wisdom. Maybe there's other reasons why it's wise to stay at the house until you get married. Maybe there are. I'm just suggesting that you don't have a biblical requirement to do so. So it's optional, but it's not necessary. That, that, that's my application of that. Where do I draw the line between personal convictions and a command to honor your parents? Honoring your parents, that was the last part of your question. Honoring your parents, oh, duchess of mischief, <laughs> is, um, uh, is something you can do even if you have different convictions. So that you could say, hey, parents, I love and I respect you. I really believe that this is, this is the truth and this is right. And I'm going to do that. But I want to do it in a way that honors you the most. And that's okay. Sometimes honoring people is is how you disagree with them, not just whether you disagree with them. So yeah, I think that there, there can be a thing there. So Lord, give you wisdom to be able to make good choices. Even if you think your parents are somewhat wrong about this, my last recommendation would be this. Even if they're wrong, even if they're wrong that you should stay at the house, see if there's anything they are right about. Things, concerns that they have that might be legit about you, that might be uncomfortable to admit because, you know, it's coming from your parents, it's about you, and that can be an awkward thing. But they may have legit concerns that you can at least take into consideration and grow and be wise from as you move forward. All right, you guys, that that's the stream for today. Um, what I wanted to do that I, I didn't do, and I'll tell you real quick, um, are two things. I'm, I'm let you know for three weeks, I'm not going to be doing for, yeah, three weeks. There's no, right. So for two weeks, there's no more Friday Q and A's for the next two weeks. Then on the third week, I'll be doing one, but that's because there's a marriage conference coming up and I need to prep for that and work on that. And I'll be out of town and I will link in the video description, the actual marriage conference. So you guys can actually check that out that if you're interested in attending, it's going to be in Arizona and eventually some video footage from this will go up either on my stuff or at, um, the women's Bible study website, but I'll put a link down below for it if I haven't already. And you guys can check that out. Also, um, I've really wanted to share this with you. And this is like a worship song that I wrote. <laughs> the reason why I'm sharing with you guys is because it's a communion song. It's a good Friday. And it really is very relevant to, to today, to what we've got going on. And I'm going to see if I can get it set up. And I'd like to close out today's stream by sharing with you guys a communion song that I wrote. And, and it's, it's me singing and all that. Um, and anybody who wants to use it for worship, if you do, it's, it's not that it's the best song in the world. <laughs> This recording is super old. And I wrote it like 14 years ago, 15 years ago. But I just think it might bless you as you think about the lyrics of this song, as you consider what it means. So I'm going to play it now. I'm just trying to get it set up real quick because I didn't have time earlier. This is it on your screen. And I hope that you find it to be a great blessing today um, as you think about good, why today is Good Friday. Stop. 
I believe. 